morning. You want to open up to Nehemiah 2. While you're turning there, I'll just kind of give kind of an introduction here to what we're going to be talking about in general. And, of course, we've been in Nehemiah a couple weeks now and going through the book. And I want to talk about a larger topic in the Christian culture, if you want to call it that, uh, in the professing church, and then narrow down on using Nehemiah 2 to talk about that. But kind of going back, I used to, when I was teaching, we would do this unit. It was one of my favorite units. It was on uh, fallacies, which is false arguments. So here's this, you know, a false argument. There's a lot of them. I really liked it because a lot of times the kids would use false arguments in class, like, oh, there's only 15 minutes left, I might as well just not do anything, things like that. <laughs> and then the other kids would start calling them out on it, well, you know, that's just a slippery slope fallacy, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, yeah, see, so that's good, and it was helpful, and also they would kind of laugh, you know, like, just like you did, so that would kind of ease the tension. Um, anyways, so one of the ones was called an either-or fallacy, and basically it's the idea that there's only two options. You know, you say there's only two options, and that's not really true. And, you know, the interesting thing is that not, not only um, non-Christians can make mistakes, right, and, and be wrong. And there's actually a lot of times in professing Christ, Christianity where we don't act like Jesus. And we mess up, and we act proud or rude, um, and... We don't act like Jesus. And Nehemiah is kind of actually, whether you realize it or not, a kind of a proverbial example of one of these arguments uh, in Christianity that I would call an either-or fallacy. And it's kind of centered around the idea of how you treat the Old Testament. How do you read the Old Testament? How do you preach the Old Testament? How do you teach the Old Testament? And... There's, it's actually quite a heated argument whether you're in on that or not, whether you know that or not. But, you know, I'll give you an example that I remember from back when I was in college. There was kind of, I'm not going to give churches' names or people's names because I don't want to do that. But it's just kind of a good example where one pastor went to this other, was invited to this other church to speak, and they had a more of a, an emphasis on the Old Testament as, a, as an example for the Christian. And this other pastor, his emphasis was the Old Testament is really pictures of Christ, which both are true. But So he preached a real fiery sermon basically against it. You know, and um, I'll just read you a couple quotes here. Um, this, is, this is from the point of view that you should not be preaching the Old Testament as, you know, an example. So he says, I'll just read you a couple quotes from this sermon, and it's pretty fiery, you know. I'm not going to try and imitate it, but very fiery. Very, a couple kind of yelling and things like that. So he says, The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. There are some people saying the Bible is a roadmap to life. And this, it's in some way a roadmap to life of what we should do where we should go, but ultimately, you can't call the Bible roadmap to life. Ultimately, it's not the roadmap to life, and if you think that, the way you read the Bible is wrong. What you will do is you'll keep inserting yourself into the stories of the Bible like you're the hero. This happens all the time. 
And this is where there's yelling. He yells, you are not David. You are not David, real loud. (laughs) Your trouble is not Goliath. Your trouble in life is not Goliath. And if that's true, you're in a lot of trouble because you miss. You fling your stones at Goliath and you miss and he's still there. If you view the scriptures through that lens, that all the superheroes in the Bible are actually you, then you put a weight on your shoulder that you will not be able to bear. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Moses. And Jesus is the greater Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let's make sure we're playing the right part in the story. So, you can imagine kind of controversy if your pastor had just preached about David and saying, you know, like, David's an example to us. You know, is there a Goliath in your life? And things like that. And that would be very confrontational. (laughs) And there's true things in there that he said, absolutely. And Nehemiah is kind of the center of this controversy because a lot of times I'll even hear, I've heard actually many times people in sermons mock how people have preached Nehemiah. They talked about maybe leadership, you know, how Nehemiah is an example of a leader and how we can apply that. And they'll kind of mock that as dumb and uh, unspiritual and things like that. So Nehemiah becomes kind of this battleground or even a joke to people in certain circles of how to teach the Bible badly or something like that. So what are we going to talk about today? As we read through Nehemiah 2, we're going to talk about how do we apply the Old Testament? How do we preach and teach the Old Testament according to the Bible? And um, if you've been listening to the news lately, you've probably heard of, they say the PPE a lot in the news, personal protective equipment. Well, my sermon, my points aren't about that at all, but it, it goes, the way I remember it is PPE. That's kind of helpful to remember it. The Old Testament points to Christ. The promises are fulfilled in Christ. And it's an example for us to follow and examples for us to avoid. So pointing to Christ, promises fulfilled in Christ, an example. And the point I'm going to make basically is that it's not either or. It's not like you can only use the Bible, one, the Old Testament as examples, or you can only talk about how it points to Christ, that it's both. Um, and we really should be like Jesus, right? When we... There's a lot of things like this that we encounter, not just how to read the Old Testament, but lots of different views on different things in Christianity, and we want to act like Jesus in it, right? And ask questions, well, what makes you think that? And um, talk about the, maybe ask them what verses they're looking at, because it may not be an either-or, you know? Maybe something where you didn't think about this verse or that verse, and we want to act like Jesus in it. So let's read Nehemiah 2 here together. That was just an introduction. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. When I was very much afraid, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when you will return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night into the valley, into the valley gate, to the dragon spring, into the to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So let's start here with how does how do we read the Old Testament? One of the ways, the first P in the PPE of the three points is pointing to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. In Luke 24, 25 through 7, this is when Jesus is already resurrected and they meet him on the road. And this is what he says to them. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it's saying here that he told them how the Old Testament was talking about him, was talking about Christ. And so we know that Nehemiah is pointing to Christ, uh, the book of Nehemiah, the, all the books in the Old Testament. That's true. You know, what that pastor said about Jesus is the greater Moses, that's true. All those Old Testament scriptures are pointing to Christ. And how can we see that here in Nehemiah? Let's think about these, these passages. Well, Nehemiah could be a type of Christ, you know. Uh, greater Christ is obviously greater than Nehemiah, but kind of foreshadowing Jesus' coming. How does he do that? Well, think about how Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, and as we'll see later in the book, He's extremely, extremely rich. Um, extremely rich. He tells how much food he prepares for all the servants and things each, I think it's each week. It might be each month. I should have looked it up. 
Um, but it's more than we could probably all afford if we all got together and sold all we had for very long. It's like uh, ox and a bunch of wine and all this other stuff. And um, I asked, well, I think it was Roy, how much does a cow cost? And he's like, I think he told me per pound. Of course, I can't, I don't even remember how many pounds a cow weighs, but it was a lot. It's like, yeah, I couldn't afford that. And so he's, he is, he's really rich. He's doing really well. And what does he do? He leaves that that comfort to go where to take on a more exalted position a really honorable position no to go and live in this city that's crumbling falling apart and it says none of the houses were rebuilt yet so that either means there was literally no houses people were living in ruins or there was some houses that didn't get torn down and they were surrounded by ruined houses either way it's not a great place to live and so he goes there and he takes on the role of a servant to people who are in misery. So he leaves his exalted position to comfort others. He humbles himself, taking the role of a servant. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Aren't you glad that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, who didn't leave us in our sin? You know, this was a result of sin, right? Remember in the Old Testament, God promised them, if you, you know, rebel against me, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to discipline you. And that's exactly what happened. It, re- it reminds us, obviously, of Philippians 2, where it says that Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, Jesus was much higher up than just the cupbearer to the king. Jesus was God himself, and he became a man to live, to live with us and to rescue us from the results of our sin. And so we, we can take comfort that just like Nehemiah looks down and cares about what's going on in Jerusalem, God cares about what's going on in your life and in our life, even if it's a result of sin. God deeply cares, like we talked about in Nehemiah 1, about our misery even what's caused by sin in every year of our life, spiritually, physically, all of it, emotionally, relationally. God cares, and not only does he care, he comes down. He takes action. So that's one way Nehemiah is pointing to Christ. Um, another way is we see Nehemiah praying you know, for them. It could foreshadow how Christ prays for us. Remember in Hebrews it says that he... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, God, God, Jesus, is praying right now for you, if you're a Christian. And that's an encouragement. That he's looking down and he's seeing what's going on in your life, the difficulties. Maybe there's relational breakdown, emotional, spiritual, physical. And he's praying. He cares. And just like Nehemiah, you would think, well, why does he care? He's so far away. Well, that's not true. He deeply cares. And he's, God is not far away, though Nehemiah was. So not only does Nehemiah, a picture of Christ, in terms of his coming to them, his humbling himself, his serving them, his praying for them, not only that, he's persecuted for doing good. You see here at the end that they... He leaves this high place to come and and be what? Be mocked, basically, by some of these other people that live around Jerusalem. 
which obviously is like Jesus. He was mocked. Uh, remember when Jesus, uh, John, they're getting ready to stone him, and he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You know, Jesus is innocent, but he's being, being accused of being a rebel and being mocked and persecuted. Remember they, they said, are we not right in saying that you have a demon? They, <laughs> remember that? That's crazy. I can't believe they said that. It's sad. Um, but it's a crazy thing to say to Jesus. And they're mocking someone who's there to, to do good and who hasn't done anything wrong. It's similar to Nehemiah. Again, later on, he's going to be accused of being a rebel to the king when he's actually loyal. And same with Jesus. They accuse him, right, of, of not doing what God said, of doing the opposite, of breaking the law when he's there to fulfill the law. In all these ways, we see Nehemiah is pointing to Jesus. Just like Nehemiah loved, served, humbled himself, was persecuted, and pers- persevered in doing good. So did Jesus, except even more so. And finally, one other way, there's, there's more. Um, there's, I'm sure there's more, but we can keep hitting these as we go through Nehemiah. But one more, at least for today. Um, he came to do what they couldn't do for themselves. It really seems like they couldn't have pulled this off, uh, rebuilding the wall apart from God's hand. You know, they get the supplies um, that comes from the king's forest. And, and not only that, they get letters that say this is okay uh, from the king, that they know that it's okay to rebuild the wall. And still, they all, they, it seems like it's, there's still a lot of opposition even despite all that. And so, just like, just like we couldn't save ourselves, it seems like somebody has to come in from the outside and, and help them in the same way that we couldn't save ourselves from our sin. We, Jesus had to come from far away. He was, he was the one with the plan, not us. He was the one with the ability uh, and the provision to pay for our sin by his blood, not us. And so we're thankful. I mean, we can be thankful that Jesus is who he is and that we have a greater than Nehemiah to come and put back even what our restore, what we destroyed by our sin. So we can see and we can praise God for this. We can say, God, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for how he points forward to Jesus. Thank you for how Jerusalem points um, the, to the new Jerusalem, which we're a part of. And that's all true. Um, that's how it's all pointing to Christ. But we also see, this is the second point, is that not only is it pointing to Christ himself, that every promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. If you want to turn to Second Corinthians 1, read the verse there. Second Corinthians 1, 20. I'll, I might read just 19 for context, but... For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanus and, I, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Verses 20, this is what I want to look at. 
for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So in him is Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. So when we look through the Old Testament, we see lots of promises. Are they only for Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament? Well, whatever they are, the fulfillment is found in Jesus. We know that. They're all, all their yeses are found in him. He came to put everything right. And he, we can specifically apply this to what Nehemiah prayed in, in chapter 1 earlier. He, he prays about this promise that God made. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring to them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So God's promise there is if you rebel and you sin, if you repent, if you return to me, I will restore you, I'll gather you, I'll gather all the people of God um, in the place to make my name dwell there. Well, the immediate context there is obviously Jerusalem is the place where God made his name dwell. We could give a couple of verses from the Old Testament, like uh, Psalm 102, it says, For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So he's there, God's promising he's going to build up uh, Jerusalem, the place where his name dwells. But we see in the New Testament that you know the ultimate fulfillment is the people of God is everyone covered by the blood. Uh, that we're the new Jerusalem, we're the we're the new Israel. I'll read you a verse here from Ephesians 2. It says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In, in him you also are being together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the ultimate fulfillment of the dwelling place of God is not just the temple or Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem, the church. And God's going to gather us, and one day we will. We'll all be gathered together ultimately, and when he, Christ returns, we're going to be fully united with not just us that are living right now. The church across all the ages is going to be gathered together who are trusting. And so... This is just one example of how we could say Jesus fulfilled this, this idea of those who are far off being restored, being brought back and forgiven. Well, we see that's obviously through Jesus. And then you could see the beginnings of that and just salvation, but the ultimate culmination of that is when God puts all, all the results of sin right. Not just our spiritual guilt, but our physically, we haven't been healed yet, but we will be. Us emotionally, we've still got lots of up and ups and downs, but whatever we're supposed to be, we will be. Uh, we're going to be t- the whole package of everything that a human being is and was meant to be before the fall is going to be restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And there will literally be this new world uh, where that's going to be rebuilt by God without the effects of sin. Just like Nehemiah came to restore Jerusalem to where it was before the sin broke it down. And so... Jesus is, we can look as we read the Old Testament for pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, foreshadowing of Jesus, but also promises that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill them. And then finally, an example to follow or avoid. 
that it is right and good to look in the Old Testament for examples of how to have faith, to follow God, to walk with God, and things to avoid. And the one way we know this, and all these, you can see that I'm saying, how do we read the Old Testament? Well, we're using the Bible, right? I mean, that's what we're saying is, well, what does the Bible say? And if the Bible uses the Old Testament in a way, we surely don't want to con- condemn that. <laughs> that's scary. And unfortunately, like we talked about at the very beginning, Christians kind of has to have a tendency to do this, like, well, this is the right way, and can be mean. <laughs> and the problem is, well, what if the Bible doesn't say that? Or what if the Bible says something different? That's a scary thing to, to be saying then. And for, and for saying that the Bible can't, the Old Testament can't be an example or shouldn't be preached as an example to follow or avoid is against the, Old Test- is against the New Testament for sure. There's a lot of examples of this. I'll just read you a couple here. Uh, in James it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire the evil, desire evil as they did. So there's the negative example. This, all this took place as negative examples for us. Now here's a positive example right after that in the same chapter. This is chapter 5. Now these things happened to them. Uh, sorry, no, I, I, I quoted the wrong thing there. That first one was from 1 Corinthians this next one, 1 Corinthians 10, this, this one's from James 5. It says, Behold, as we consider... Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me get my bearings here. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Job was an example of suffering and patience for us. And he says, take the prophets um, as, as one of those examples, specifically Job. And so we see in the New Testament that we can take, and they do take, the Old Testament believers as positive and negative examples, what to do and what not to do. I'll give you one, one more verse here from Second Peter. It says, if he did not swear the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, as for that righteous, as for that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So again, we see a negative example and a positive example. And the negative is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in one way, the positive is that he calls righteous, he calls Lot righteous, and the example is that God knows how to rescue them um, from where they are. And to rescue the ungod, to rescue the godly from trials, and so there's so many more. I mean, just think about Hebrews 11. It's like a whole list of many, 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 many uh, saints who had faith in the old in the Old Testament, and then it ends, you know, in chapter 12, where it basically says, "Look at what they did, and now you do that." You know, uh, definitely an example, and one of them. Uh, is David ironically in there? So, using David as an example, 
So we can we can look to David and we can look to the Old Testament as not only an example of Christ, which he is, but an example for us. You know, the interesting thing for me is like, well, if it's all pointing to Christ, and it says in the New Testament, we're supposed to be like Christ, isn't that an example to us? <laughs> you know, it's like, this is all these people are examples of Christ. They're not an example for you. Well, we're supposed to be like Christ. So, isn't that an example for us, you know, if they were being like Christ? And so, we don't want to... We don't want to say either or. We want to be able to do all. We want to both look for examples and look for Christ. Both. Well, how do we apply this specifically to Nehemiah 2? How is he an example to us here? Well, we could summarize it in just really brief by faith in God. Trusting God. He is an example of faith in God. You know, one one example is just his conduct when he's uh, cupbearer to the king. It's pretty amazing that here he is, cupbearer to the king of Babylon, like we already talked about, and yet he's trusting God in it, and he appears to be doing his best in it. And when he wants to go off and help, the king is wondering, well, when are you going to come back? And that's not what you say to your worst servant, right? He obviously wants him to come back and to serve there. We can kind of read between the lines that, he is a he's a good servant to the king and he does his job well you know it's an example to us to trust god wherever he's put you and to do your best there acts 17 says that god made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek god and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Well, what does that mean? It says God made everybody, and he put them exactly where they are, and he determined the time and the boundaries of where they're going to live. Where you are right now is where God wanted you to be. If God could put you anywhere in the world, I mean, if God said to you today, imagine this, you're sitting here in this sermon, and you're kind of zoning out, which might not be hard to imagine, (laughs) Uh, and you... You hear God talk to you, and he says, for some reason I always think God has a little voice when I read the picture Bible, I always don't use my voice, I always like do a lower voice, but he says, probably in a lower voice to you, like, um, Andy's not here, so I'll pick on Andy. Andy, you know, I've got somewhere I need you to be, and, you know, do your best. And maybe Andy says back, like, where? It's like, right where you are. Because that's exactly the truth. <laughs> That's what God has done. God put you exactly where he wanted you to be, and it's where right where you are. That's what the verse says. He allotted the times and boundaries of their dwelling place. And you need to honor God where you are and have faith. That takes faith, right? Because I talk often to different people, and there's a lot of people, I've heard this so many times, like, well, I just feel like my job is meaningless. It doesn't do anything. Nothing good's being done. Uh, it's just a waste of time. Well, It takes faith to believe, no, God has me here for a reason. I don't know what the reason is right now. I can't foresee what that's going to be. But there's a purpose, and I'm here for God, and God wants me here. That's huge. It's really, really huge. And the reason that it's big to have faith in where you are in in your job, with your family, with uh, all the situations you're in, your neighborhood, is you don't know how God's going to use it. Like this whole thing with Nehemiah, this is the last guy any of us would have expected to rebuild Jerusalem. 
It's like, here's this guy who's cut bare to the king of Babylon. He's the one going to rebuild Jerusalem. He's so far away. It would be like God sending one of us to like, probably the only place in the modern world that is as far away in terms of time to get there is like South Pole or something. But we probably get there faster than Nehemiah got to, uh, to Jerusalem. It was a thousand miles away. And took him a long time to get there. A long trip. And yet, he was the one that God had there for a purpose. And what a good thing that he had been just faithfully doing his work. That when he asked the king, God's good hand was on him. And yet, he had favor in the king's eyes. And he got this um, permission. So, you have no idea what God's going to do. It might be something you would never expect or you can't even see. How is this? How could this have even happened? How would this be something that would be helpful um, but it is when you're trusting God where you're at and you're honoring him with all you do. You know, that's another thing that as we look through Nehemiah, the whole book, but we see it definitely here in chapter 2, that what God has given us to do, we work hard at. We do our best. The, Bi- the Bible has a lot, a lot, a lot to say about work and a good attitude towards work where we uh, work hard and we have... We don't want to have a bad attitude about it. Um, And that's one of the things, you know, as parents, like for me, I'm trying to instill in my kids is working hard is good. And there's a rightness and a joy in doing that. You know, the Bible has a really positive view of work, that there was work before the fall. It wasn't like, you know, all work is a result of the fall. Remember, he told them, cultivate the ground. Remember, Uh, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, give order, basically make the whole world like a garden. That was before the fall. After the fall, it got harder. You know, there was toil. and It wasn't like that before, but there definitely was work. And so God has a positive view on work. God works, and we should work, and we want to have, have this positive view and to do our best. You know, in all toil there's profit. Remember that proverb? In all toil there's profit. And actually, that might be from Ecclesiastes. Anyways, um, the Bible has a positive view on work. And you see that here in Nehemiah. He's, he's going, he's taking a long trip, which I'm sure was very difficult. And then he's, you know, we're walking around the city, inspecting, trying to figure out the plan, and he's doing his best. Um, so we trust God where we're at. We trust God and work. we work hard on whatever he's given us to do. Uh, whatever our hand finds to do, we want to do it with all our might. And then once we've... At, once we have acted and worked, we trust God with the results. And that's what Nehemiah does here at the end. Even though he hasn't, even though he hasn't built the wall yet, this is what he says in chapter 20. He replied, or sorry, verse 20 at the end of chapter 2, he says, After their taunts, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. It's just, really he's saying you know, the work is in God's hands and he's going to make it prosper. And we, we kind of do this, we can do it as we work, but we also do it after we work. We give it to God. Um, God will make us prosper. God has you for a purpose. He has you to do something. And he's going to use that for good. There's a lot of verses about this that we can, we can believe and trust. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, except for 40 hours a week at his job, he prospers. No, in all that he does, he prospers. Like God is going to help you in your job. God's going to help you with your kids. God's going to help you when uh, they're sick. And it seems like, you know, how many times do I have to wipe this nose? It's like the hundredth time, (laughs) you know. It's like kids are... You're just doing the same thing over and over, but you know what? There's a purpose. It's like when you're patient with your kids on the hundredth time, that means something. That does something. That honors God. And even if your kids are too young to remember it, it's working something uh, good in our hearts and for the glory of God. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's going to give you grace so that in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. You're going to be overflowing. I like to change that abounding to overflowing because it kind of gives you the... um, God is is able to make all grace overflow to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may overflow in every good work. It's like God's pouring into you. God's able to pour into you so you can pour out wherever you are. And that's the way we live our life. We're trusting God in where we are. We're trusting God in our work we do. And then we trust the work that we've done to God for the results. We trust the results to God. And so this is an example to us. Nehemiah is, is both a picture of Christ and an example to us of how we can live our life. And so just in conclusion, I just want to ask you, you know, and how could you apply this message to your life? Well, one... We want to be gracious in all we say and do towards other Christians, towards each other here, uh, in everything. We want to be like Jesus, and we don't want to get to where we have these either-or, where we're really, um, in general, I would say 99% of the time, we shouldn't be scoffing and mocking and things like that. Uh, if somebody else has a different emphasis or or something like that. Um, the only reason I say 99% of the time is, I remember Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal, scoff, you know, kind of mocked them once. So, but the general principle seems to be that's not the right thing um, the vast majority of the time. But we want to have a good attitude as Christians. We want to be gracious towards other Christians. We don't want to have this either-or attitude, especially if the Bible presents both. Um, you might It might be things like... Um, well, our work and God's work. You know, if he, uh, Philippians says that God works in us, and then we also work out our salvation. So it's like we're, it's both. We're working and God's working, and we don't want to get to where it's like I only listen to sermons that we're talking about God's work, and I don't want to hear what I have to do, or vice versa. We don't want to get to where we only want to hear sermons about my responsibility, but I've already heard about the gospel. We don't want either one of those. We want to, we want them both. We want, we want to be biblical. Um, so it could be something like that. It might be just in your Bible reading you could apply this, and maybe you'll be able to remember PPE has a point to Christ. Are there any per- promises that Christ fulfills, and is there any examples that I can avoid or any examples I can follow? And there's, there's a really good resource that I want to, 
tell you this is one way you could apply this to your, to your life in, in terms of Bible reading. At the back of some of the ESV study Bibles. Now, I don't understand why they didn't put it in all of them, but there's this really great little, probably like 30-page section that says history of the salvation, history of salvation in the Old Testament. And it's how each chapter, it has every single chapter in the Old Testament and how it's pointing to Jesus. It's really, really helpful. And you could read it um, each day. and Or you could think about, well, how does this point to Christ? And then look and see what they thought. I think there's, there's just a short little one sentence. And you might find something else that they didn't write. But it's really helpful. Now, if you don't have the ESV study Bible, I think like the bigger hardback ones has that in the back. Some of the smaller, more compact ones don't. But that's okay if you don't have that. Um, the guy who wrote it, he posted it on his blog with permission for you to print it. I actually thought about printing it, but I had to ask permission because it's not personal use. Anyways, you can print it yourself. I don't think I can print it for everyone, but I, you can go and print it for yourself. So we'll, I'll just send the link. We can just send that out with uh, small group questions if you're interested. It's He wrote it. He has permission from Crossway uh, that he can distribute it, and you can print it for yourself for free. So that's one way you could apply it. Or you could just do this as you read the Bible. Think, how does this point to Jesus? Is there any promise here, and is there an example for me to, to avoid or to follow? And there may not be all three, but usually there's two out of the three in each chapter of the, of the Old Testament. And then finally, I mean, maybe for you, the thing you want should apply or is just faith this week in your work. Just This is where God wants me. I've got a purpose here, and who knows what God could do with it. It could be something that I don't expect at all and could help people both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, any one of those, maybe all of the above, and honor God with it. And so we, we want that. Uh, we want to... We want to be like Nehemiah. We want to lean into Jesus, trust him. He's our, he's our, he's the greater than Nehemiah. And, you know, that might be the final way you could apply this. Maybe you're not a Christian and you feel just like the people in Jerusalem, like my life's falling apart. Um, I have all these things going wrong. A lot of, a lot of it is out of my control, but some of it is a result of my own sin. I need help. I need somebody from the outside to fix me and to save me from the results of, of my sin, you can look to Jesus. I mean, he's willing and able. He's more compassionate than Nehemiah. He's more loving. He's more aware of your needs. He's more ready to come. It's going to be a lot faster than it took Nehemiah to get you know a thousand-mile journey. He's there. He's ready to help you today. If you lean on him, trust him, uh, give, give all your cares to him, he's able. So... Why don't we pray together here? Lord, we want to be like you. We want to see you and know you better, and we want to be more like you. So we commit this uh, time to you, and we just confess um, we are, we're not like you, and we want to be more like you. Would you help us in all our interactions uh, as a church, as individuals, as families? We need help. Every day, would you make us more and more like you? Would you help us to trust you more and more each day with everything you've given us to do with our kids, with our work, in every area of our life? I just hand that to you, and um, I do pray if there's 
anyone that's lost and thinking, um, I just pray that they, you'd help them and you'd draw near to them and um, wash away their sins by your blood, give them peace with you, begin to build their, rebuild their, the walls in their life. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for grace and forgiveness. And thank you for everyone here. Amen.